The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Hello, I'm Dr. Andres Rich. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're sharing the most recent EVRMA Journal Club, where we discuss the role of endometrial thickness in embryo transfer outcomes. Let's listen in. It's um, one o'clock here in New Jersey. It's uh... 7 p.m. Uh, in, in Europe. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Andres Rich. I'm one of the current fellows at RMA New Jersey. And I'm so, so happy to welcome you all to the first session of the EVRMA Journal Club we're hosting today. As the EVRMA family continues to grow, we want to take this as an opportunity to take the combined experience of running individual journal clubs that were taking place at many of the centers that compose our big family and create a unified event to share knowledge and discuss new science with everybody. The plan for today is to have the presentation of an article, which is titled The Effect of Endometrial Thickness on Life Birth Rate, Insights from 959 Single Euploid Frozen Embryo Transfers Without a Cutoff for Thickness. And the presentation will then be followed by a discussion by two of our expert panelists. And then there will be time for a Q&A from all of you with our panelists as well. Let me briefly introduce you to our panel for the day. The article will be presented by Dr. Haley Genovese. Dr. Genovese is uh, a fellow at RMA New Jersey since July 2022. She graduated from the University of Michigan with a Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience and was recognized as a James B. Angel Scholar. She then received her medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine, where she served as chapter president of the American Medical Women's Association. And she completed residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson. During residency, she served as an ACOG Junior Fellow Ambassador, and she was recognized with several awards, including ACOG Community Service Award in 2019. During medical school and residency, she has authored several peer-reviewed articles and presented abstracts at national and international meetings. And she also very recently became board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. So congratulations, Haley. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, our expert commenters after her presentations will be um, Dr. Jason Fernasiak and Dr. Emre Selly. Unfortunately, our other commenter, Dr. Elena Labarta, could not be with us today due to foreseen circumstances. Um, Dr. Fernasiak graduated from the College of William and Mary with a focus in biology and biochemistry, and he went on to pursue uh, medicine at the University of Virginia, where he received his medical degree and was awarded the Shannon Z Award for Most Well-Rounded Medical Student and the Algernon Sidney Sullivan Award, recognizing excellence of character and service to humanity. He completed his residency training in OBGYN at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Dr. Fernasiak, as you all know, is one of our own. He completed his reproductive endocrinology and infertility fellowship training here at RMA, New Jersey, in the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship. He is not only board certified in OBGYN and REI, he is also a high complexity lab director in embryology and andrology, and he currently serves as the lead physician of RMA's Marlton Clinic and Lab in South Jersey. 
He has been invited to speak nationally and internationally and has authored and contributed to over 100 peer-reviewed publications, published chapters, abstracts. He serves on the editorial board of Fertility and Sterility and the British Journal uh, of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And he also serves as an ad hoc reviewer for many other journals. Jason, thank you so, so much for being here and spending this hour with us today. Our other commenter for today is Dr. Emre Selly. He's a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. And he's also the research director here at EV America. Dr. Selly received his medical degree from the University of Istanbul and completed his residency in OBGYN at Yale University. And his doctoral training included a fellowship in REI, as well as a research fellowship in molecular biology, both at Yale as well. His laboratory has characterized the mechanisms of regulating translational activation of gene expression in the oocyte. And Dr. Sally and his colleagues have also made seminal contributions to our understanding of oocyte and embryo competence in IVF and the potential role of non-invasive diagnostic technologies in this context. He's a recipient of several National Institute of Health and Pharmaceutical Industry-sponsored research grants. He has published more than 150 scientific articles and received numerous research awards from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the SRI as well. Dr. Sally has delivered more than 150 invited lectures nationally and internationally, and has received uh, several awards for his teaching as well as his research. He has edited four books and most recently co-authored the ninth edition of the most acclaimed book in our field, Spiros, uh, Clinical Gynecologic Endocrinology and Infertility. Dr. Sally, it is always a pleasure to hear you speak on any topic related to our field. Thank you so much for being with us today as well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So now that all the... Um, proper introductions have been made, I think we can go ahead and um, get started. Um, Haley, the floor is yours. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Andres. We're going to be talking about Dr. Anna's article, The Effect of the Endometrial Thickness on Live Birth Rate, Insights from 959 Single Euploid Frozen Embryo Transfers Without a Cutoff for Thickness. So some background about this topic, um, there, the established cutoff values for minimum endometrial thickness prior to embryo transfer historically have been arbitrarily chosen. Prior investigations have kind of come to some contradictory conclusions about the point at which a thin lining actually matters, how thin is too thin. And why might this lining, uh, a thin lining matter to the embryo? Um, some arguments have been made that closer proximity to the uterine spiral arteries might contribute to higher O2 concentrations, and non-physiologic O2 concentrations could create an unfavorable condition um, in terms of oxygen-free oxygen radical production that can affect the developing embryo. Um, but biological mechanisms overall remain controversial. So the study aim of this paper is primarily to evaluate the effect of endometrial thickness, which I'll kind of here refer to as ET in the slides, on live birth rate in single euploid frozen embryo transfer cycles. Um, the primary questions they wanted to answer really is, is there a linear relationship between endometrial thickness and live birth rate? Is there a threshold below which the live birth rate is significantly going to fall? And is there an optimal range that is associated with a higher live birth rate? So the materials and methods, this was a retrospective study uh, of all single euploid FETs between March 2017 and March 2020. Uh, it involved three fertility clinics in Muscat, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi. The exclusion criteria was untreated uterine pathology, hydrosalpinges, double embryo transfers, and patients who did not undergo PGTA. Uh, in terms of insemination, the patients either had conventional IVF or ICSI. Uh, either sequential or single-step media was used for culture. 
uh, trifectoderm biopsy was performed on all embryos who achieved at least a 3cc grade by day six. Uh, NGS platform was used for PGTA. The FET protocol was either programmed or natural cycle. In programmed cycles, patients received 10 to 16 days of estrogen supplementation prior to progesterone start. And in natural cycles, vaginal progesterone was started after ovulation was confirmed with laboratory evaluation. There was no minimal endometrial thickness required uh, to proceed to, to frozen embryo transfer. Uh, the blastocysts that formed were categorized into three groups that were deemed low, good, or high. Low quality was expansion grade three or four with an ICM or TE grade of C, and high quality was an expansion grade of five or six with an ICM or TE grade of A. And those who didn't fall into one of those two categories were, were sort of put into the middle category of good. Uh, live birth rate was the primary outcome. Conditional density plots were used to assess for a linear relationship between live birth rate and endometrial thickness. Um, so that was looking at how the distribution of endometrial thickness changes over the live birth rate, which was the continuous variable. Uh, ROC curve analysis was used to identify a threshold thickness below which live birth rate declines if such a threshold exists. Uh, and in searching for an optimal range, the, there was a distribution of cycle characteristics and embryo quality within a particular range, and that was compared to those in the other ranges. So they ended up comparing the sort of the highest um, bracket of thickness with, with those of the other um, of patients who fell into the other brackets. And we'll go over that in more detail. This is just really, it's overall the patient's characteristics, but kind of a breakdown of how patients fell in terms of programmed versus natural cycles. So about two-thirds the patients uh, had a programmed cycle and one-third had a natural cycle. And that was true in when they included women who had repeat cycles and those without. So this wasn't only first FET attempts. This was um, including women who had more than one within that study timeframe. Um, logistic regression models were created for both programmed and natural cycles. Uh, they controlled for age at egg collection, embryo quality, the day of TE biopsy, and BMI. Endometrial thickness was converted into four brackets. This was the independent variable, and live birth rate was the dependent variable. The extremes of endometrial thickness, uh, those less than four millimeters and greater than 12, were a very small portion of the patients, less than 1% of the sample size. Going through some of the results, uh, 959 single euploid FETs from 773 couples were analyzed. The overall live birth rate was 47.1%, uh, or 452 out of 959, um, and the endometrial thickness ranged from 3 to 14 millimeters. This little graph here is just kind of a breakdown of how patients fell into each bracket. So the majority of patients, about 60%, uh, had an endometrial, a peak endometrial thickness measurement of six to eight millimeters. Um, and then uh, the next largest was uh, the group right above that from eight to 10 millimeters. Um, and then smaller portions of patients, 5% at the highest range of 10 to 12 and 7% in the lower range of four to six millimeters. Um, and in case this wasn't clear, this is the, the endometrial thickness at the maximum um, point in the follicular phase uh, or the proliferative phase at which the, you know, before progesterone start has occurred or exposure has occurred. So the conditional density plots did not show any linear relationship between endometrial thickness and live birth rate 
or a threshold thickness below which live birth rate decreases. Um, so it did not impact, appear to have any impact um, at all. The ROC analysis did not show that endometrial thickness has a predictive value for live birth. Uh, in the overall study population, the ROC was 0.55, and in subgroup analyses of programmed and natural cycles, it was in a, at a similar point, 0.54. So this little graph here um, is just kind of showing how to interpret the ROC curves. Uh, basically, uh, at, a at a value of 0.5, it's essentially random, whether it's, um, you know, it's, there's not any indication that this um, variable has, has made any difference at all in terms of predicting live birth. So while no linear trend, um, there was a peak in live birth rate at 11 millimeters, which is seen here on the conditional density plots. Um, so for the overall study population and in the two subgroups, we see that at about 11 millimeters, there's a little peak here. Um, and patient and cycle characteristics were similar between the 10 to 12 millimeter bracket and other brackets. Um, there was no statistically significant difference picked up here. Logistic regression analysis did not suggest an independent effect of endometrial thickness on live birth rate in programmed or natural cycles. This is the results of the multivariable logistic regression analysis. This is really just showing that when comparing the very thinnest group between four and six millimeters, um, there was no statistically significant difference comparing that to any other brackets between six and eight, eight to 10, or 10 to 12. Um, in the natural cycle group, there was a slight um, movement towards significance with a p-value here of 0.052. Um, however, we'll talk more about why the group thought that this was not a, a truly significant finding. It just would require more investigation in the future. And that was true as well in the program cycles. As you can see, none of in that side as well, there's no significant difference here between any of the brackets. So they wanted to, you know, find out if variance in the day of endometrial thickness measurement actually impacted results. So, you know, if a patient had the lining measured um, a couple of days before progesterone was started versus the day before progesterone was started, you know, if it was two, one day versus two days before, did that make a difference? And they actually uh, had a great population for this because the vast majority of patients were measured at the day, time of progesterone start or only one day before. Um, the mean difference was actually only 0.01 days. So most patients were measured on the day of interest. Um, so there was very little variation here, which makes it a, a great um, population for, for answering this question in an accurate way. Um, they found that there was no significant difference in live birth based on the time interval between ultrasound measurement and prod start. Additionally, there was no association between um, endometrial thickness measurement and you know that same time interval. So basically, the, the lining was not measured thinner based on the day that that peak measurement was done. A subgroup analysis of cycles with measurement done the day of ovulation or prod start, so they kind of excluded now anybody that didn't have it done on that day of interest, demonstrated a similar random pattern between endometrial thickness and live birth. So based on these results, there was no linear relationship between endometrial thickness and live birth rate or a cutoff point for endometrial thickness below which live birth rate was actually impacted. The typical seven millimeter cutoff point arises from a retrospective analysis of 123 patients, which was done back in 1990. Um, you know, they make the argument that this might not really be generalizable to our current practice. In this study, live birth rate was seven, sorry, 46.9% in cycles with the very thinnest endometrial thickness of four to six millimeters. And that was quite comparable to the overall group live birth rate of 47.1%. 
This optimal thickness that was picked up around 11 millimeters, they believe is likely an incidental finding um, for several reasons. There was no linear pattern. There's the absence of a biologic gradient, which I'll show in better detail in the next slide. And likely this was just due to random statistical variation. Um, in natural FET cycles, there was um, a more impressive increase in live birth rate from 9.5 to 11 millimeters. But this may also be, be just be due to random variation. There was a small number of cycles with an endometrial thickness greater than 10 millimeters, and there were actually no low quality blasts transferred in that group. Um, so the finding, and this finding is also not backed up by other studies. They would have, if this was a true, um, you know, biologic event, they would have expected to see this in, in other research, which we have not. In natural cycles, um, the peak endometrial thickness, they make this point, does not vary significantly between cycles. So make, sort of suggesting you can't improve much upon that patient's baseline. If you do two back-to-back -back natural cycles, the variation in peak endometrial thickness measurement tends to be within one millimeter. So trying again with the same approach might not be um, you know, uh, worthwhile in that situation. Here's just kind of showing why they think um, that this uh, finding in the um, program cycles is really not um, anything that we should be paying too much attention to. There's no biologic gradient here, which means that a greater exposure to, should lead to greater incidence of the effect. So why is 10.5 and 11.5 sort of having this shoulder appearance? You know, what would make 11.0 more special than 10.5 or 11.5? Um, so they think that this is, is likely just statistical variation and not, not a true event here. Some strengths of the study, um, these are all euploid FETs, the first study of its type to only include PGTA-tested euploid embryos. They adjusted for age and embryo grade. Um, there was minimal variance in the day of max thickness, so we really are capturing the value of interest. Um, and the, there also was a sensitivity analysis done, which I mentioned, for the same-day measurement versus one day early, and no difference there in the pattern observed. Some weaknesses, they did not do any a priori power calculation before undertaking the study. However, um, with this number of patients included, they were able to detect small effect sizes with 90% power, which is still quite strong, um, or, you know, very strong. The, there was a limited number of patients in both extremes, which is um, you know something that anyone studying this topic will, will occur. There's going to be more patients you know, going towards the middle with a more typical thickness compared to those who are very thick or very thin. Um, of course, endometrial thickness measurements are subject to inter and intra observer variability, um, and they included women with repeat cycles, although sensitivity analysis on first cycles only also showed no difference in the pattern observed. So this didn't really appear to, appear to impact the results. So our conclusions, um, there does not appear to be a threshold endometrial thickness that precludes live birth or under which live birth rate notice, notably decreases, and of course, in patients who achieve at least four millimeters, which was our study population here. Canceling FET for lining less than seven millimeters may not be justified. More research is needed to investigate the pattern in natural cycles, as well as the very thinnest patients with an endometrial thickness less than five. Thank you so much. Thank you, Haley. That was a, that was a great presentation. Very interesting article, kind of challenging a, a longstanding dogma, so to speak, in our field. Mm -hmm. um, I'll yield the floor now to uh, to Jason and Emre, who um, who wants to go first. I, I think I think Emre's saying I'm going to go first. No, I think you should. Jason should do it because he's the real discussant. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I, 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 you're 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 a, you're a wonderful stand-in for Dr. Labarda, though, uh, Emery. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Dr. Genovese, uh, 
a very, very nicely presented article. Again, I do think that this is certainly a, a longstanding issue that we have had in the field. And as has been noted, there were a, a large number of studies which have shown very contradictory things. Some of the dogma that this was all based on was based on some very early studies that had a lot of heterogeneity. And I think that one of the things that these authors have done have been to really try to isolate endometrial thickness in terms of the factor involved. Uh, I think that being able to, number one, uh, plan to transfer only euploid embryos is a large factor because obviously ploidy has been shown to be a key factor when it comes to pregnancy outcomes. And then also being able to do a frozen embryo transfer and, able, and being able to control for embryo and endometrial synchrony uh, as dyssynchrony can arise in fresh transfers is an important component. So I think that the authors can certainly be applauded for, um, for that. Uh, I think that um, you know, the uh, conclusions that they come to um, ought to be taken with a slight grain of salt. Uh, I think that with the data that they have, um, it is reasonable to conclude that canceling for aligning less than seven milliliters based upon this data is perhaps not indicated. But uh, I will say that one of the things that is quite important to consider is their primary outcome. Uh, and their primary outcome was live birth. And live birth in this study was uh, defined as any delivery after 22 weeks of gestation. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we have come to focus upon, particularly at EVRMA, uh, as we have become kind of leaders in the world when it comes to reproductive outcomes, we have transitioned some of our focus to not only success being defined as a delivery, but as a success being defined as a healthy singleton pregnancy. And I think that one of the things that perhaps could have been done, given the fact that they did have live birth outcome, was to be able to include things such as gestational age or birth weight, and perhaps, if available, information surrounding other complications during pregnancy. I think that one of the things that we do get concerned about um, when it comes to thin endometrium is placentation, and placentation assuredly uh, if abnormal, can lead to complications during pregnancy, uh, in particularly uh, in particular preterm birth or um, being born early, having low birth weight, and other potential hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, so preeclampsia or other hypertensive diseases of pregnancy. So I think that one of the things that could have been perhaps done would be to focus not only on live birth, but uh, being able to give some of the secondary outcomes when it came to the pregnancies themselves. Uh, I think one of the other things that I had noted uh, 
um, was that there wasn't a great deal of information mentioned about the progesterone monitoring of the pregnancies themselves. Uh, all of the uh, cycles, frozen cycles, did have vaginal progesterone provided. Uh, and the only reason that I think about this, because again, uh, this was across the entire board, no matter what the endometrial thickness. But if you were to look at the um, table in which they differentiated natural versus frozen transfers, the group that had the lowest uh, endometrial thickness, the four to six millimeter group, there were proportionally higher numbers of natural cycles. Uh, and that may or may not have a confounding factor when it comes to the progesterone supplementation in the pregnancy. Uh, we know from Divine et al. and Fertility and Sterility 2021 uh, that um, uh, Intramuscular progesterone was superior to vaginal progesterone, not given either daily or every other day. And then Dr. Labarda is, of course, one of the experts in the world on progesterone. And she published the really fantastic paper in Fertility and Sterility in 2022, which had looked at individualized luteal support with sub-Q progesterone if uh, the progesterone level was low. Now, I will say that progesterone levels in a natural cycle with added supplemental vaginal progesterone would very likely be higher than potentially in a cryosynthetic cycle. Um, so I think that there was perhaps a, a little bit of um, a concern regarding a lack of a mention of the progesterone monitoring. Um, I think that uh, some of the other things that they discussed in terms of there being um, a, a lack of a linear correlation um, may not be terribly surprising to me. I don't know that we're going to see a concrete linear correlation. I would think that there may be more of a threshold effect. Uh, and there was that slight increase at the 10 to 12 millimeter mark. I can't disagree with any of their discussion about why that may not have been a concretely physiologic or biologic uh, phenomenon. Um, you know, overall, I do think that the study is helpful when it comes to being able to understand a little bit better the impact of endometrial thickness. Um, I know that uh, Dr. Genovese is. Uh, very uh, involved with this, with our randomized control trial, which is being done at RMA currently, uh, which is looking at uh, the use of platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, in patients with endometrial insufficiency. And to meet criteria for this study, you need to have an endometrial thickness of less than six millimeters. Um, and I, you know, perhaps we will find that uh, indeed there may be some concerns with endometrial thickness that is that thin. Uh, of note, only seven percent of the patients in this study had endometrial thicknesses less than six millimeters. The mean in the groups was seven point four. Um, so perhaps we are not seeing that there is a linear correlation, but there may be a threshold effect, and perhaps 
that threshold effect is a bit lower than what they were powered to detect in this study. Um, but I think that one of the things that uh, Dr. Genovese and I have found is that, um, you know, we obviously, we're, we're still in the middle of the randomized control trial. We are actually still blinded to which group the patients are in. But I do have, uh, just by looking at their, their charts, have information about pregnancy outcomes. And again, these are individuals with very thin uterine linings and pregnancies assuredly exist. Um, I think that the main question that I have is how healthy are these pregnancies? Will they ultimately deliver at term uh, with normal birth weights and without complications of pregnancy? So I think that this, the conclusions of this study are accurate for the data that they presented, but I'm not so certain that the data presented is the entire story. Should I add a few things? I think we have two more minutes for the <clears throat> for the discussions. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Emery. I had oh, no, it no. very short. Oh, no, no, I was hoping you would go even longer. <laughs> no. Okay, so... Uh, uh, Jason is one of those people you don't want to talk afterwards because he speaks so eloquently. But there's, I'll just make a few points. One is that I agree with Jason's um, comments, including the fact that this is a study that has to be noticed and that has to be discussed and that has to be known. That's why we brought it up and we congratulate the others for, for doing this study and for Twitter to pub for publishing it. And I know it, it went through a lot of statistical backs and forth, and, and I think it's good to know that this study exists. What excites me these days is, is that I think there are new tools now, like a standardized usage, usage of thought transfers, application of PGTA, um, and which allows us, especially in large centers like EVRMA, to ask new questions or, or question uh, our beliefs. And we may find out that, no, we were right. You shouldn't be transferring <laughs> embryos to people who have a lining who's less than seven millimeters, or we may find out in the future that maybe that was uh, not a necessary cutoff point. And I think, uh, again, knowing the study is good for us because it's a good thing to question. And I think at EVR, maybe we are really well positioned to questions, which I'll come to at the end of my comments. One thing that I always wonder in ovarian reserve or endometrial reserve or endometrial function studies is, is um, differentiating people who have inherently something wrong with them potentially versus those who just need a little more time. In this study, I want to point out that there that no adjustments were made based on what I read in the method section uh, to those who had a thinner endometrium, which meant that maybe there were people who had like a endometrial lining of 6.5. And in our practice, Maybe you would give her a little longer estrogen and reach 7.5 or 8.5, but this wasn't done. Is there a difference, biologically difference, or potential difference in future pregnancy or complications of pregnancy in those women who would never reach 7 millimeters versus those who has a potential to reach 7 or 8? It just were cut earlier. They were biologically normal. They just needed more time. It's just a theoretical question, but I think it, it may be worth uh, asking in, in, in a separate question. One other thing that is important for me in coming from my personal clinical experience is not only the th 
thin endometrium, but the presence of fluid, a lack of trilaminar, and it's all in these papers, not only in this specific paper, in many papers, it's difficult to really understand what happened to them. Like the, the person who was five millimeters, did none of them had any fluid or they had any fluid in the beginning, but not on the day of the transfer. It's it, because my, you know, we may have anecdotal experience that these people with thinner endometrium may be associated with other, other issues. So, and finally, uh, finishing in one minute, uh, I think uh, we are taking this and similar papers very seriously. As Jason said, there is an randomized clinical trial regarding this. There's another randomized clinical trial about the use of modified natural versus uh, program cycles after a failed cycle. And we also have a very large VRMA global uh, trial on endometrial thickness. So we will uh, hopefully bring up relevant data within a year or so. And we're looking forward to the comments of the audience. Thank you. If I could just add to, I think the other, the other, the only other thing, and thank you, both of your comments were great. And, um, you know, I think one thing that we're taking into consideration with some of the projects that we're working on now on this topic is a history of uterine surgery and, and kind of looking at the difference in people who are just baseline thin, but without any history of uterine instrumentation versus people that have a history of multiple uterine surgeries. And, you know, as Dr. Sally mentioned, sometimes those people with scar tissue or are the ones forming fluid and have other issues and that's sort of a different population. So um, they didn't address that um, really in terms of whether the patients uh, in this study had a history of that or none of these people did, but I think that's sort of interesting as well. And that's something we want to take into account with our next um, couple projects on this. Thank you. Thank you all for these very, very interesting points on on everything from the impact of endometrial function itself and the neonatal outcomes. And um, we're going to move on to the Q&A with the audience. To keep things orderly, we're going to have you raise your hand with the little icon on the top of the screen. Um, two people already have. We'll start with uh, Dr. Pacer. If you want to unmute yourself and go ahead. Yes. Hello. Uh, I would like to congratulate the presenter and the discussions. Uh, I think that the points they made uh, regarding the outcome of the pregnancies is very important, but uh, in reality, uh, as um, Helen mentioned, uh, the, the number of individuals in each uh, extreme is, is very low, but uh, uh, for sure this might have a, an effect, especially women with, with endometrium between four and six. And uh, the, the question I, wanted, I wanted to, to address uh, has been already uh, commented by, by um, Emre because everybody speaks about endometrial thickness, but we see many times women with irregular endometria that are 7.78 millimeters. And uh, people just don't uh, mention, and it's very easy to, to to observe, although in a very thin endometrium, four millimeters, maybe it's difficult to find the uh, trilaminar uh, pattern, but in in thicker endometria, you can find irregular uh, patterns and nobody has pointed out to this. And perhaps it's, a, it's an idea to, to look at this into our group. Thank you, Dr. Pacer. Definitely very, very uh, valid point and we should definitely look at that. Um, Dr. Uh, Molinaro, I think you had a question as well. Yes, and and um, in the spirit of great minds think alike, uh, I think I agree with everything that Tony said. He stole some of my thunder. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest for me, the biggest um, thing in the method section that I took note of was that everybody had a trilaminar pattern, it seemed. 
And I think that all of us would agree clinically that a patient with a six and a half millimeter trilaminar lining is very different from somebody with a seven millimeter lining that's heterogeneous with fluid in it, right? And I think um, <clears throat> perhaps we're really looking at 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 different at two different phenomenon there, right? I think the trilaminar pattern is something that we have always really stressed as as probably one of the more important features when we've set patients up for um, for transfer here in New Jersey. It would be interesting to look for other other factors to to modify this as well. And and one of the things that we still don't have great data for, I know there's some studies looking at, at compaction between the setup and progesterone start, but I think that that's another piece of this puzzle that is really, really um, fascinating to me. Um, and then the last piece or the last thing that I'll mention is I know that there's an article that was published this month looking at the opposite effect of what's too thick and perhaps thicker endometrium being at at risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes. And that's something that we almost never look at, at least here in, in our clinic. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever canceled a patient for having too thick a lining, um, but maybe we should be looking at the other end of the spectrum as well. Very good. Um, it would be great to hear a little bit either from the audience or from our speakers as well. Um, what What do you sort of normally do, I can kind of guesstimate from Jason's point of view since we are in the same place, but um, what do you normally do? Do you normally require everybody to have at least seven? And then if that doesn't work, then do you make exceptions for a second cycle? Will you always make an exception even on the first cycle? If let's say, like we were saying before, somebody is at 6.5, but is beautiful looking trilaminar endometrium. Um, what What is sort of your Kind of general practice, do you actually have a cutoff and would you change that based on this paper specifically? Jason, do you want to? Sure. So, you know, in general, again, I've kind of been indoctrinated with this seven millimeter cutoff. Um, you know, it, it, it oftentimes uh, for patients, you know, as um, Emery had pointed out, um, for some patients who don't quite reach that on the timeline that I might expect, I, I oftentimes will give a little bit more time or change the route of estrogen administration. Um, I will say in my general practice, again, not, not based on perfect data in any way, but if we aren't able to achieve the seven millimeter lining in the first cycle, um, I often will cancel them. I do have conversations with patients about thinner linings and the potential uh, for obstetric complications at that point. Uh, and then would attempt another cycle, oftentimes switching the route of uh, estrogen administration. And if in that subsequent cycle, uh, am not able to achieve the seven millimeter lining mark. I, I do have the conversation with the patient about proceeding with transfer, uh, knowing that perhaps in theory, there may be a decreased chance of success or there might be an increased chance of complications with pregnancy. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if this uh, paper in and of itself would change my practice just yet. Um, I still don't know that there is the the data surrounding the question of the safety of the pregnancy itself. But I think that this does provide reassurance that we are able to have successful pregnancies with thinner linings. Um, again, I 
the the goal has shifted from a successful pregnancy to a successful or healthy live birth, though. We had um thank you, Dr. Franizek. We had um Dr. Bali raises her hand as well. Um, thanks. Um, yeah, another comment that I just wanted to add to um, a lot of the others in terms of missing information that I wish I would have seen in the paper, um, along with, um, as Dr. Fernizek said, about progesterone, I was also surprised that there wasn't a mention of estrogen levels as well, um, because there are, you know, different studies out there that not only look at, you know, peak estrogen levels, but also um, what type of estrogen administration as well as duration of estrogen and how that can specifically impact not not only live birth, but also some of those pregnancy complications. So I, I did think it was interesting that there wasn't even um, any any note of, of uh, we know what type of estrogen, but no note of the level um, or just kind of how much the duration changed. Um, and then the other point that I thought of as I read this um, was about the study population itself. Um, I, I think it would have been really helpful in terms of thinking about, you know, the selection bias for this study of how what percentage of their patients undergo PGT testing. You know, are we looking at like a specific subset of patients? Like maybe they only do like 20% of cycles with PGT and in some way are those patients different than the rest of their practice? Or is this group that was selected for this study is a good, you know, sort of representation? Um and then maybe this is just um, a detail I would have asked as a reviewer, but, you know, they they carefully phrased there was no requirement for, um, you know, endometrial thickness. But I wonder, you know, how many patients, especially at those lower levels, were they actually canceled and not included in this study versus it being we transfer kind of no matter the, the thickness. So that would have been something I would have wanted to, you know, to sort of clarify um, because maybe we're missing um, a big chunk of people that that had canceled cycles. These are very good comments. My understanding from the first author is that he never cancels from uh, for thin endometrium. So I think it was a pretty standard management, and they no longer cancel. So, so I guess they'll have more data. But and also just you know looking at internal data, I think it, there there is some. Uh, um, reproducibility to what they have observed when we look at our own data. So I think we, we will end up doing larger studies with with all the data that is or part of the data requested in this discussion, because as you know, like the authors of this article, we also don't have really good access to obstetric outcomes. I mean, we have some access, but we're not we don't have 100 percent access. So we may not be perfect in our obstetric outcome reporting in the at least in the United States. Um, but the, the rest should be available, such as the estrogen levels, progesterone levels, et cetera. Um, my impression of from working with him is that most, in terms of PGT, is that they do do a lot of it. I don't know the percent, um, but I think it's not 20%. I think it's he does majority of the patients are doing PGTA. I think there is uh, one more comment here. In the meantime, uh, Dr. Ubaldi, go ahead. Uh, yes, congratulations first for the comments and uh, the presentation, really. Uh, mine is not really a comment, but um, a suggestion. Uh, the suggestion could be that uh, we are we do uh, hundreds, uh, thousands of, of cycles. Uh, we could do something that we did already for the RIF study, 
with 120,000 uh, euploblastoses that is now accepted in uh, in uh, in human reproduction, we could do we could design a study all together and only with euploid blastocyst, and and we will see what's what's going on with uh, endometrial thickness. And very very soon we will reach a huge number of uh, of uh, euploid embryos transfers, and then we could have an answer to to all these questions and comments. Thank you, Dr. Ubadi. You mean perspective, right? Yeah, perspective. Thank you. Dr. Ubadi, that's a really great point. And I think that one of the big things that that could do would be able to control for obviously a lot of the shortcomings in the retrospective study, including variations of endometrial thickness and timing of measurements, et cetera. So we have many young people attending. Hopefully, some of them get interested and come up with a proposal for a study. <laughs> this is uh, one of the purposes of, of this activity, of course. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, our time that we had scheduled is up. But I think, um, I hope uh, everybody would agree that this has been so, so interesting. I I mean, we, we had an interesting discussion and we've potentially already started a new perspective study between all of us. So fairly fruitful discussion, I would say. I'd like to thank all of you for participating, especially Haley, Jason, and Emre, and to Aitami for coordinating. Um, we really hope you enjoyed today's Journal Club and hope to see you all for the next one, which will be on February 15th. Have a great day, everybody, and thank you so much for participating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of FertilityPod by EVRMA. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe or leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. Join us next time for more cutting-edge research, talks with renowned speakers, and all things reproductive medicine. See you next time.